Hey everyone, in case you didn't listen to our last episode, episode 69, Core Strength has a protocol that you can participate in. We're trying to rally the troops and get some research subjects for a strength protocol that is supposed to improve your anaerobic capacity by 10%. So we have a link in the show notes. If you want to go check out the article, uh, it explains the protocol. It gives you a place to put in your results after four weeks. And for this episode, we also have an article on Tabata. So if you want to go over the protocol after we talk about it in the episode, we have a written form of it. It could be a little easier to read about it uh, after you listen to the episode. So that's also in the show notes. We also have all of the research in the show notes as well. So check those out and have fun with the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. How are you doing, Jason? Hey, Todd. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Pretty good. What do we have to talk about today? So today we're going to talk about high-intensity interval training, and we're going to start with Todd In 10 words, tell me what you think high-intensity interval training is. 10 words, because when I asked you about caffeine on that one preem lap, uh, I had to stop you after two minutes. Let's keep this one a little shorter. So I would think about that as short intervals that occur above threshold. I think that's under 10 words. Okay, that's good. And you touched on a few good points, and they are short. They are usually high-intensity. That's in the name. And... Um, obviously, there's some sort of training. And actually, we'll find throughout the episode that actually the recovery period is also important or related to the effect of this high-intensity interval training protocol or whichever protocol you choose to follow. So let's get started with, I looked at Google Scholar. I looked at some old papers. One of the oldest papers I could find was from 1977. And there were 32 female athletes. It was an eight-week program, and they saw a 13% increase in VO2 max following a high-intensity interval training program. And that was sort of the first or one of the first that said, hey, maybe we should do high-intensity intervals. People were doing it beforehand, but in terms of getting true scientific research. And one big thing is they were focusing on VO2 max improvements. And It's interesting, we'll see kind of how that develops over time in our understanding of the usefulness of high-intensity training. To be honest, I'm actually surprised in 1977 that they did a study with 32 female athletes. That surprises me a little bit. Maybe it shouldn't, but it does. Well, I'll one-up you there by saying the next study is from 1985, and they looked at changes in skeletal muscle fiber types from high-intensity intermittent training. Instead of interval training, they used intermittent training and for their terminology and they they had 24 sedentary patients 18 of which were women and i don't know if this study built on the other one and sort of wanted to keep the same cohort or if it just happened that these institutions had more access to these were sedentary patients rather than female athletes but it is interesting that these two very early on high intensity interval training papers were female cohorts and For this paper, it was super maximal exercise, so above threshold, and it lasted 15 to 90 seconds. Um, I didn't dive in deeper in the exact protocol, and that's because the takeaway here is that they noted an increase in the proportion of type 1 and a decrease in type 2 B fibers in response to this training. And 
Todd, you probably know this better than me. At the time, this was their conclusion was that the training actually increased the proportion of type 1 fibers. And that's actually something that's sort of fallen by the wayside in later years. We can't really change our fiber types. Is that correct? There's some fiber type transition, right? Type type 2 is a little bit flexible. But I think, yeah, and I was going to say that seems like a surprising result to me that high-intensity efforts would yield an increase in type 1 fiber. That, that seems counter to what we expect type 1 and type 2 fibers to be responsible for. Right, so they didn't see much of a change in type 2A, and type 2A is the they're fast-twitch fibers that have greater endurance, and type 2B are the ones that exhaust very quickly. And so they saw a decrease in this type 2B fiber type. They saw supposedly saw an increase in type 1, and it may have to do with the way they measured it. But I think the big takeaway is that High-intensity intervals may cause muscles to fatigue more slowly. These fibers are all transitioning towards having greater endurance. And so that might give us a hint as to some of the benefits of high-intensity interval training, especially for a really old paper, one of these early papers in this area. Moving on to the next paper, in 1994, this was the first time HIT was used as an acronym that I could find on Google Scholar. And HIT high intensity interval training. It's simply the acronym has since taken off and there are a massive number of Google searches for HIT on every day across all sports. And spoiler, high intensity interval training is a big buzzword, especially even in the last five years or even less. And that all started in 1994. This protocol, they had two groups. One group did a 20 week endurance protocol and another group did a 15-week high-intensity interval training protocol. And the HIT program, they burned half as many calories. But the author noted that vigorous exercise favors negative energy and lipid balance to a greater extent. So greater energy utilization and greater lipid balance in the subjects. So not during the exercise in particular, but in general, just measuring their ability to use energy, their, their ability to use fat. And he also noted that there were metabolic adaptations in the skeletal muscle in response to the HIT program, and it appeared to favor the process of lipid oxidation. And I think this is why HIT is really big, especially I'd say in pop culture, not necessarily, I mean, certainly in training circles, but especially in pop culture, if you pick up a magazine off the newsstand, a fitness magazine, or just even a, any sort of a pop culture sort of magazine it's always in there because it has this promise of we'll do these short short intense workouts and you can you know, lose weight lose fat that's always the promise i think people are looking for and want to hear so i think it's interesting to see that correlation and i think that that phenomenon of yes there's less calories burned during the exercise but it seems like it's more favorable for overall um, negative energy balance is what's called um, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. So you're actually created a debt that you're then repaying later on after the exercise is complete. Yeah, and so one way that we actually uh, burn calories or lose weight is through the carbon that is exhaled. We take O2 in, we take out CO2, and that carbon is uh, a main contributor of our weight loss. And so you could see how increasing that, the breath, the amount that we exhale after workouts, I can cause greater weight loss. And it's interesting that you're right, in, in popular culture, 
it is associated with greater fat burning and of course the exercise itself is not burning more fat it's burning dramatically less fat than some endurance protocol and that's because it is at higher intensities where you have to use carbs in order to produce that energy within our cells and so it's interesting that this study does say that you have this higher fat metabolism later on or you know after the protocol and you know, don't get it confused. You're not burning more fat during the exercise. You're just training your body to use fat more at a later time. Right. And I think for our use as cyclists, this is something we've discussed previously, using the fat while you're riding at that endurance pace is actually really important because you want to conserve your carbohydrates for when you need to ride at a high intensity, perhaps to make an attack or at the end of the race. Yeah, and I think one confounding point, though, that, that is a good point that we we as cyclists want to in, increase our fat metabolism, especially at higher intensities. If we can induce tempo or even up into threshold to start to use some fat, that can be really beneficial for our performance. But I wonder if these high-intensity interval training program subjects had greater lipid oxidation because they were using up their carbs through the, high, the HIIT program, and that sort of forced them to use fat because they didn't have any sugar left to you know, produce energy throughout the day. I think that's a, a very, very reasonable hypothesis there. And, and why, why not? So we just have to be careful with uh, you know, drawing too many conclusions or getting too excited for the cycling population because you know, we just shouldn't extrapolate too far these sedentary or um, amateur athletes that were used in this protocol. Well, and even to the point earlier about the paper from the 1970s, in theory, our male listeners maybe shouldn't take the results of that study to mean that they're going to be able to replicate them, knowing that it's female athletes, right? If you're a male athlete, ostensibly, you should be looking at a paper that has at least some male subjects in it to be able to apply those results to yourself and feel that they're valid and relevant. Not to say that you couldn't look at a study like like this one and say, hmm, maybe there's some results of that high intensity interval training that does apply to me. But if you wanted to be more confident how the results might affect you, you probably want one that has male participants. Sure, I think that's a good point. A lot of these papers that maybe aren't the same human subject group as you, for example, sedentary people, or you know, it's popular to do studies on obese people, the elite athlete population, even if the population isn't quite the same as yours, if the result is interesting, it's worth saying, hmm, and potentially trying to extrapolate that information, but at the same time being cautious about definitively saying, you know, this is the next step or this is the training that I need to do. So just be right. careful yeah. and it's a balance. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, if, it's, if the population doesn't match you, and one of the things we always talk about in physical therapy literature is there's inclusion exclusion criteria for a patient. And if the patient sitting in front of you would be excluded from the trial, then the intervention in that trial, it might work for that patient, but you certainly shouldn't look at that research and expect the same result that they got in the trial. That's a good point, Todd. Let's transition to a cycling specific paper. And you may recognize the name of the author. So in 1996, Izumi Tabata, who is a Japanese researcher, he completed this pretty famous study, at least in sort of cycling sports science, it's a pretty famous study. And actually, that's, that's permeated pop culture too, for sure. 
Yeah, so the, the term Tabata, Tabata is used. Yeah, correct. So Tabata is used a lot in popular culture, running, CrossFit, even um, some of these other sports. And you probably even find Tabata mentioned in your local YMCA at the local fitness class. And so in his, in his paper, he took young male students majoring in physical education. These were physically active. A lot of them were involved in varsity sports, but their VO2 max was around 50. And, you know, that, that's pretty good. Um, it's probably above, uh, above male average. Like sure. Baseline untrained average is like 42-ish for males, 38 to 42, I believe. Okay. And so, you know, moderately trained, certainly not elite athletes. But, you know, how do you get 30 subjects uh, other than through your, you know, high school vars or your college varsity sports programs, right? They broke these students into two groups. The first group did 70% of VO2 max for 60 minutes a day, five days a week for six weeks. And this group was supposed to simulate just sweet spot training, right? 70% of VO2 max right around sweet spot, maybe top of tempo and... They wanted to look at the aerobic response of that workout, and the second group did the Tabata protocol five days a week for six weeks. And I'm going to go over the Tabata protocol. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a little bit confusing, and so I'm going to try and explain it the best way possible. So we're going to consider one set of the Tabata protocol to be you ride for 20 seconds at 170% of your VO2 max, and then you rest for 10 seconds. And then you repeat the same 20 seconds at 170 VO2 max, and then the 10 seconds rest as many times as you can until the power drops off by 5 or 6% is the protocol they used. And they said if the power is correct, it should be about 6 or 7 times before your body physically cannot maintain that power. And this is so this is one set of Tabata, and it's, it's 3 minutes or maybe even less. At that point, you take a short break. Uh, they don't actually mention in the protocol how long that should be, but three minutes is, is a good length of time. And you do another set of this same Tabata protocol, the same two to three minute Tabata protocol. And you do that until seven or eight sets are completed. And the way the protocol was lined out, if you made it to nine sets of Tabata protocols, they increased your power for the next day. You know, they sort of punished you for, for doing too many sets by making it harder the next time you did it. And these athletes did five days a week for six weeks, just this one protocol. They had one day where they did a little bit of, of uh, endurance training, like 30 minutes of endurance training. But otherwise... That sounds terrible. Well, do you want to... That sounds absolutely terrible, but neither, you know, continue. So, you know, why would you want to put yourself through that? And, you know, the point here is that seven or eight sets per day of riding as hard as you can until you physically cannot maintain the power you're supposed to be generating. And so the number of these 20 second efforts that you do, we're not supposed to be doing math on here, Todd, but 50, you know, 50 sets of 20 seconds at 170 of VO2 max is, um, that's hard for a single workout. And then you're supposed to do that five days a week for six weeks. So why, why in the world would you do this? So both groups, increase their VO2 max by about seven points. So the the first group, which did 70% of their VO2 max for 60 minutes, that's an hour at sweet spot, five days a week for six weeks. That's They're just targeting the aerobic system. It makes sense. It's aerobic work. You get better at 
glycogen metabolism, you get better at, uh, you know, your blood flow improves. It's just general adaptations in the aerobic capacity. And the Tabata protocol achieved this same aerobic stimulus, the same aerobic response, but the 70% of VO2 max group, the first group, saw no change in anaerobic capacity, whereas the Tabata protocol, their anaerobic capacity improved by 28%, and their aerobic capacity matched the group that simply did 70% of, of VO2 max for an hour, five times a week. So intuitively, the anaerobic part makes sense because they had to train that system to go that hard. So, I, so which one's more surprising, that they improve their anaerobic capacity or they improve their aerobic capacity on par with the group that was just training their aerobic capacity? I think that's a really good question. I, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's most impressive that their aerobic capacity matched the athletes that were doing simply aerobic work. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that because I think that starts to violate some of our basic tenets of specificity of training in a similar way that polarized training kind of violates some of our understanding of the, this core tenet of specificity of training, which is to say, if I train my aerobic system, I expect my aerobic system to improve. If I train my anaerobic system, I expect my anaerobic system to improve. But what these studies are showing us is that if I train just my anaerobic system or primarily my anaerobic system with this very high intensity interval training, I seem to improve my aerobic system as well. And I know, Jason, that you're going to remind us, and I'm just going to say it, that every anaerobic effort has an aerobic foundation beneath it. You had to go through the aerobic system to get to the anaerobic system and produce power. Right. And so this is interesting. And so shameless plug to ourselves of if you have not listened to the polarized training episode, you should go listen to that. And you'll actually probably see some of this high intensity interval training as part of a polarized training routine uh, because of this uh, focus on the anaerobic capacity or in improving the anaerobic capacity. And so Tabata actually did a, a follow-up protocol or a follow-up study to sort of figure out what was going on. Uh, he doesn't really discuss his initial reasoning behind trying out the Tabata protocol, but he shows us how it's beneficial in this follow-up study. So a similar group of patients or human subjects, and in this case, they had two groups again, and the first group was the Tabata protocol, the exact same workout series that they had for the first study. And the second group was four by five or four to five bouts of 30 seconds of exercise at 200% of VO2 max. And they took two minutes between each of these 30 second efforts. And so obviously the second group is not as hard. The total number of efforts, the total amount of work is not the same. But actually the purpose of the study wasn't to compare the, the training response but it was actually to look at two particular factors that are measured by sports scientists. So the first one is MAOD, which stands for Maximal Accumulated Oxygen Deficit. And so that's the amount of oxygen needed to be replaced after the effort. And so if you think about doing an anaerobic capacity effort, doing a one minute all out effort, you finish it and you're breathing heavily for 30 seconds, a minute, maybe even longer. And 
you're breathing heavier than you currently need and what you're doing is you're replenishing that oxygen deficit and so they can measure that they can measure the maod uh, with machines and so they can tell how much oxygen deficit or how much oxygen debt you're going into for a given effort and then the other response or the other area that they tracked was peak oxygen uptake during exercise and peak oxygen uptake that's uh, like vo2 peak as opposed to vo2 max and so they were using this vo2 peak this peak oxygen uptake and comparing it to the individual riders vo2 max and so the higher the the peak oxygen uptake the more the aerobic system is taxed so if your peak oxygen uptake is the same as your vo2 max you're maximally taxing your aerobic system and so what they did was they looked at these two protocols and they measured both the maod and the peak oxygen uptake for each group. And the Tabata protocol showed that the accumulated oxygen deficit for the protocol was similar to a maximal anaerobic capacity effort. And so they would measure them doing two minutes, I believe was the protocol, two minutes as hard as they could go, and they saw how much oxygen deficit they went into. And they noted at the end of one set of a Tabata protocol, you have the same amount of oxygen deficit or within 5% of the same amount of oxygen deficit. And they, they also showed that your peak oxygen uptake was within 5% of your VO2 max when doing a Tabata protocol. Whereas for test two, which is four to five bouts of 30 seconds of exercise at 200% of the subject's VO2 max, test two did not show they showed that the accumulated office oxygen deficit and the VO2 max were significantly lower in the last 10 seconds of the 30 second effort than the individual rider's maximal values. And so sort of the conclusion from this was doing a 30 second effort, even if it's 30% higher than the Tabata protocol, it's not enough to maximally strain your aerobic system or your anaerobic system. Whereas the Tabata protocol showed that athletes were able to maximally use both the aerobic system and the anaerobic system and that's sort of that's the reason why they they saw this stimulus they saw the increase in the aerobic capacity by seven points because they were maximally fatiguing their aerobic system they saw a 28 percent in their anaerobic capacity because they were maximally fatiguing the anaerobic capacity and it was based on the fact that the protocol induced maximal utilization of of both systems so it's almost like the Tabata protocol is sort of the, the sweet spot of combined aerobic and anaerobic system, right? We, have, we talk about sweet spot and what we're really talking about is maximizing the aerobic system in that training zone or that, that sort of a interval. And with this, it almost feels like from what you're saying in that study, a Tabata protocol maximizes your ability to use both your aerobic system and your anaerobic system in the same workout, which is pretty fantastic. That's exactly right. And so the reason that I asked you at the beginning, you know, what do you think of HIT programs? The reason I mentioned why recovery was important is because this study showed that for a single 30 second effort, you are not maximally fatiguing either your aerobic system or your anaerobic system. Just one single high intensity effort isn't enough to cause you to have anaerobic adaptations. The point is doing a high intensity interval, resting for a short period, doing that high intensity interval again, that allows you to generate that fatigue. That allows you to create that oxygen deficit to fatigue both of these systems. 
Do you see how just simply just doing a hard effort doesn't fatigue your body in the same way as doing a hard effort for a little bit shorter, resting a little bit, fatiguing it again in this very painful way, but you're actually getting to the, the fatigue point, the stimulus that you need to actually see a training response. This feels like the inverse almost of compound interest. You put money in, it grows over time, the interest compounds, that's fantastic. This is like the reverse. You're creating oxygen debt. It's like your like credit card debt accumulating. And you're creating oxygen debt. You rest a little bit, but not enough. You do another interval. You create more debt. You create more debt. And this loads and loads and loads until you've totally taxed the system. Exactly. And you know the point is it's really hard to totally tax the system with a single effort. That's sort of the big takeaway is we need this on, off, on, off to get all the way to the bottom of our oxygen, you know, our anaerobic capacity, our oxygen deficit. And Todd, I, I'm sure you've experienced this. This also happens in racing. It's the same thing. You never get popped on that first punchy effort. You know, the field surges and you have to do, you know, an all out effort to stay in position. And then someone else attacks right after. And it's that second, that third, that fourth time that you have to go into the tank that gets you. And that's because you're not able to recover enough to get that oxygen deficit back to zero. And so, you know, that's, it's just perfectly illustrated how this trains that system and how difficult that system is and the importance of it. I was going to say it's similar to the end of a criterion. It's not just one sprint to go to the finish line. There's several anaerobic efforts that are required in certain cases to position yourself to then set yourself up for that sprint to the finish line. And that's, uh, I think, a good opportunity to think about why it's important to train in this fashion, because in that last lap, you may be dipping in to the account a little bit several times, and you still have to have enough left to produce a sprint if you want to be successful. These two papers came out in 1996, and then the follow-up was in March of 1997, so it's six months apart. And since then, uh, interest in high-intensity interval training has grown steadily, and this was sort of the the catalyst for it all. And actually, in modern times, there are a lot, a lot of HIT protocol research papers, and they are finding all kinds of benefits for this type of training, not just for cyclists, but for all kinds of athletes. And one thing that's interesting, actually, is that uh, Izumi Tabata, he published a paper last year that was sort of a follow-up, a discussion on his own paper, sort of like looking back through the lens. And he noted that he doesn't really like that a lot of people are taking his research and extrapolating it. Um, he mentions in the paper, oh, this is a cycling protocol. These, you know, All these people did this on a cycle ergometer. There's no way to guarantee that you're maximally fatiguing both the aerobic and anaerobic system if you do it through another protocol, if you do it at another intensity, That if you do it running instead of uh, cycling, if you do it with weights, if you whatever. And um, he was very quick to say, you cannot extrapolate my research in this way. And maybe that hasn't really stopped people. I was going to say, I think the horse has left the barn on that one. I've, I've seen Tabata protocol thrown on all sorts of things. And I can imagine that's frustrating as a researcher when, to his point, well, I did a specific protocol. 
and I expect the results for a cycle ergometer or you know, ostensibly the bikes that we all ride that have power meters and can be used in that way or far smart trainers if we're training indoors and then people do it for running or for swimming or for the weightlifting is the one that I don't understand because these things are very different. Like, uh, weight, weightlifting was never an aerobic task to begin with. Yeah, and so the, in the spirit of Izumi Tabata, I want to let you guys understand the protocol. The, the point of the protocol is we, we do an intense effort, we get a short break, we do that intense effort again, over and over again until we're absolutely exhausted. And the purpose of that is we want to fatigue the aerobic system, we want to fatigue the anaerobic system, both maximally. And so in that spirit, if you're doing a high intensity interval training protocol, if you're doing a Tabata protocol, is that, you know, make sure that's happening because you're not going to get the value out of the workout if you don't do that, that particular thing. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. And I think there's a similarity to a lot of training and even things we've discussed on prior podcasts. I know when we talked about intervals previously, we talked about, well, when do you know you've done enough to elicit the stimulus that you wanted from that interval? Like what's the cutoff point? And it's the same here. You have to work hard enough to get to that, that point where you've fatigued the system to actually realize the results. And if you do five instead of six, or if you're doing nine Tabata repeats, you haven't worked hard enough. So you really have to find that spot where you've gotten the fatigue to then realize the result in the long term. Right. And so in this follow-up paper, um, Tabata mentions that one big issue is athlete motivation. And the reason he was able to get the original paper to work out, he was able to get the athletes to do the workout was because they were in a lab on a cycle ergometer. He was standing right there. He had he would have a few people stand around and clap and say, go, 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 go. And if their cadence ever dropped, he would you know shout louder as would the other people cheering along. And that's motivating it you know the athletes were able to then pick up the pace when they needed to and if if you're just working out after work and you don't have that motivation you're tired you you have other stuff to do in the evening it's hard to go as deep it's hard to maximally fatigue these muscle systems these energy systems and so can we really actually elicit these same responses that you might see in a research paper it's something to consider well, and are you going to do this workout protocol five days per week for six weeks? Yeah, that's even another point. And, and of course, we're, you know, Todd, you said it yourself. One of these workouts sounds, sounds horrible, very painful. And they're, they're calling for five a week. And oh, by the way, you know, the rest, of your, uh, the rest of the time, all you're doing is recovering because your legs are toast and that's all you can do. So I think there is an interesting follow-up study that maybe is out there or maybe isn't out there but what's the what's the minimum dose here does it have to be this amount or is there a way that we can work this sort of training into our typical periodized model where we have this once a week or twice a week for three weeks and what sort of effect do we gain from that yeah, and so actually that's a great time to transition to a few of these more recent papers, and I think they'll bring up good discussion points. So the last thing I want to say about the follow-up study is that I will include that in the show notes. If you're a real sports science nerd, it's a really cool paper to read, and it's open access. So um, you know, take a look if you want. Um, 
I mentioned some of the interesting points, but there are other areas that are really good reads. And he actually mentions mentions a few other researchers who are also doing high-intensity interval training studies that he feels are just as influential as he is in this area of research. So Todd, let me get you started on some of the big papers from the last three years or so. And like I said, I went to sort of the oldest papers I could find, and there there were not very many of them. And okay, Google Scholar isn't great for finding older papers anyway, but when I said, show me all the hit protocols from the last three years, I mean, there were pages and pages and pages of different cohorts and different stimulus and different protocols. And so we have a lot of discussion points as a result. I would imagine there were thousands, if not tens of thousands of papers in the last several years. Yeah, I didn't write down the exact number, but I did look at the Google trends for HIT and high intensity interval training. And actually there was a big spike in April of this year, which is right about the time when the whole world sort of shut down. And there must have been some some public publicity, some publication that talked about the importance of HIT or the usefulness of HIT if you're stuck in your house. But yeah, it is certainly very um, popular. Yeah, that, I want to say there was a workout published either in Washington Post or New York Times, like one of the big media outlets that talked about doing high-intensity interval training. So that may have driven some of that. Yep. And, you know, not just this one spike, but there is this just a steady growth over the last five years. And uh, we can see it both in popular culture, but also in the research here. So let's get started on this first paper. So um, I'll tell you the protocol first, and I'll let you guess the, the result. So they did eight to 10 one minute bouts with 75 seconds of recovery. Okay. And they did it at 130% of threshold. They were looking at VO2 max, which it's interesting that these researchers didn't look at anaerobic capacity. Of course, the training stimulus is lower at only 130%, but they only measured VO2 max. They didn't measure uh, anaerobic capacity. So what percent increase in VO2 max? Were they well-trained, novice? I believe they were um, novice athletes. Okay. So if they're relatively novice, you were actually at 130 Mostly training VO2 max, you're getting into aerobic or anaerobic, but that's kind of short for that intensity. So you probably got a three to five. And how wait, how long did I miss that? I don't actually weeks? have that noted. I think it was okay. four weeks. Right, I'm going to say you got three to 5% increase in VO2 max. So actually they saw a 6% increase. And, but here's the thing. Here's what kind of makes it weird is some of the athletes showed no improvement in their VO2 max. I, I can get behind that because I think that's not a long enough. We talked about VO2 max intervals previously, and we talk about plus or minus 100, 105, 120, 125%. And we're talking about intervals that are maybe on the three-ish minute at the higher intensity. So that doesn't feel like enough stimulus to move the VO2 max enough to me. And so total time at VO2 max is only eight to 10 minutes per workout. So the author suggested that the athletes should have done more volume of reps. And so that's one way to look at this is they should have done more sets so that they could spend more time at VO2 max in order to get a greater stimulus. But the other thing is their rest period was 125% of their training period. 
And mm-hmm. so this author sort of misrepresented this paper as high intensity interval training because it doesn't take advantage of the limited recovery as part of the training modality. Right. And so it kind of the takeaway from this paper is be careful. It's, you know, it's not high intensity interval training if it's, this is just a VO2 max protocol. Right. Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, not, not uh, even the best uh, one. Not a, very, not a very strong one. Um, so another paper, um, we're not going to evaluate it as closely, but it was 16 male triathletes. Half of them completed a running-based HIP protocol. And so you know, here's an extrapolation of the standard cycling protocol. And the results were they saw a 6 to 9% increase in vertical jump. And they saw some improvements in swimming and running time versus the control group. And the control group just did regular training. And the big takeaway here is the author noted that the increases in performance were likely caused by an increase in muscle force production. And that's where the vertical jump piece comes in. Yeah. And that, so that's why they saw the improvements in vertical jump. But I think sort of the reason why this isn't also isn't maybe the right conclusion is high intensity interval training isn't a strength protocol. Yeah. I was just going to say, I don't understand what the vertical jump has to do with your endurance performance these things are not the same. And so it's almost like a, you know, an incorrect interpretation of the purpose of high intensity interval training, or, you know, maybe they're trying to warp the, the usefulness of the protocol, but we're looking at creating adaptations in the aerobic and anaerobic energy systems, not in muscle force production. Right. And not in uh, a creatine phosphate energy system activity, which would be a vertical jump. Right. And so, you know, once again, a little wishy-washy in terms of the original intent or the original idea of high-intensity interval training. And the next paper, also quite interesting. So high-intensity interval training elicits higher enjoyment than moderate-intensity continuous exercise. And so specifically, 11 of 12 participants said they enjoyed HIT over moderate-intensity continuous exercise. And get this, Todd. It scored about 20% higher on the physical activity enjoyment scale. Well, I guess I have to retract my statements about those Tabata workouts then, huh? Well, so I didn't write down the exact high-intensity interval training, but this one was not cycling. This was like a sort of a YMCA, uh, an exercise class high-intensity interval training protocol. Something that you would have in a gym. But... This could give us an indication as to why popular culture enjoys HIT is the physical activity enjoyment scale shows us it's a little more fun than you know running on a treadmill for half an hour. And then I guess the thing that potentially you're getting at, and sounds like Tabata would agree as well, that's all well and good, but are you really following the protocol that was laid out for the cyclists, or are you doing something that feels like it but isn't? approaching the the training uh, rigor of that protocol. Correct. And, you know, to build on this more and sort of how HIT is diverging, another paper showed no difference in decrease in fat mass or weight circumference in overweight and obese subjects. And so they, they did a HIT protocol. They also did a steady state protocol for these overweight and obese subjects. And in both protocols, they lost fat mass, they lost waist circumference. But the big kicker here is that HIT took 40% less total time to complete the workout. I, I see why HIT is popular, 
if in all honesty, you can achieve the same result in 40% less time. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, even the original Tabata protocol, you could do four days a week, four hours of, of endurance zone riding, and then do two days a week, do um, you know one minute efforts, do 10 one minute efforts in the same day, and you would get similar responses as the Tabata training protocol, but your total training time would be two or three times larger. Right, and I think in busy lives, then that makes sense that we want to do these short, intense interval workouts to get our result. Right, so maybe we're getting a better idea of how HIT fits into training. So the original idea of HIT was, look, this maximally fatigues both of these energy systems. But maybe it's turned into, look, you can get the same training stimulus on less time. It's more enjoyable than continuous exercise, which... By the way, I would be that one out of 12 people who enjoys moderate intensity continuous exercise more. I find it very relaxing, meditative. And, you know, we, we also see that HIIT protocols, the, the running protocols, increasing muscle function. So there are advantages to HIIT-based protocols, but they are kind of diverging from the original premise. Correct. And, of course, that's the, the danger of extrapolating results from one study into a different form. Absolutely. And so I have two more papers. Um, for the first paper, high-intensity interval training leads to greater improvements in acute heart rate recovery and anaerobic power than high-volume, low-intensity training. And this is just a generic benefit that is you know, divergent from Tabata, but uh, it makes sense. Your acute heart rate recovery improves. Your body gets used to doing this supra maximal effort and then your body is able to return to homeostasis quicker and then of course the anaerobic power portion of course your anaerobic power goes up more with high intensity interval training than some high volume low intensity training no one does endurance zone two to improve their anaerobic power right but you have to build the base underneath the the anaerobic power so so yes you do just not directly Right. And so we're sort of diving into what it means to train. And so like your anaerobic power doesn't go up, but your ability to produce super maximal efforts will improve from endurance zone two. But the anaerobic portion isn't really trained directly through that endurance training. That's something that you would add on top. And it's interesting how coaches or sports scientists, you can sort of uh, place these puzzle pieces together how you want. We know endurance training gives you that aerobic base, gives you really good stroke volume, gives you really good adaptations, and that's why all these uh, you know old cyclists have are so powerful. But at the same time, there are these sort of you know I don't want to say cheap, but you know alternative methods to uh, tax these other systems that they give short term results at least. Right, and which is attractive in terms of fitness and in terms of results, but. I think we've established and said many, many times over building the aerobic system is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. You can perhaps do these intervals. You can get a short-term boost, but is that something that's going to become sustainable? Probably not. And you really have to put in the, the work in terms of the, the zone two rides over years to see the really big changes. Absolutely. And so the last paper I have is 
This is actually a pretty cool paper. So six high intensity interval training sessions over just five days. So one of the days they did two high intensity interval training sessions is just as effective in increasing maximal oxygen uptake. So VO2 max and endurance capacity. It's equally effective as six high intensity interval training sessions over two weeks. But yes, I've, se I've seen similar studies to this where you, it's like you're blocking your high intensity within um, a cycle of your training. Yeah. And so actually the difference, the shorter group, so the people who did six training sessions in five days, they showed higher submaximal exercise fat oxidation than the longer group. And this might go back to our sort of, well, yeah, they burn through all their carbs. So of course they have higher fat oxidation uh, in their submaximal exercise following the protocol. Yeah, they just had nothing else to use. They had no, no other energy source but fat. Right, and so uh, let's be careful about you know saying that high intensity interval training induces greater fat oxidation. But it is interesting that we're getting back to this idea that it's more about the time and zone than anything else. It doesn't matter how often you rest, as long as you do the same training sessions, you have the same increase in maximal oxygen uptake. Although to maximally fatigue the systems, the rest does come into play there, right? Yeah, and actually, so there's another paper that I'm sorry I didn't take better notes on, but I, I, this may have been Tabata again who commented on this. There are certain protocol types that you want a long rest period and certain ones you want a short rest period. And this is an interesting discussion point. For example, if you're doing two by 20s at threshold, Todd, do you want a 30 second break between these two threshold intervals or do you want eight minutes or 10 minutes? I was going to say something on the order of eight to 10 minutes is appropriate. And I think it scales, right? There's like a scaling factor depending on zone of what you, what sort of a rest is appropriate for each type of training stimulus. And so the idea here is that there are some protocols, there are some workouts where it's beneficial to have a long rest because you can do the next set as hard as possible. There are other protocols. Go ahead. So sprints are similar to that. You do a super hard sprint, you don't take 30 second break. If you're trying to work on maximal sprint power, you actually take several minutes break. Uh, and the same with heavy weightlifting protocols, you take several minutes break to be able to go as hard as possible in that next set. And the point of that is we, the training stimulus comes from lifting that weight X number of times. And then there are other protocols where the training stimulus comes from maximally exhausting that particular energy system. And so it's interesting how the rest period is related to the stimulus and related to the usefulness of the workout. And so getting a long rest when the protocol calls for, you know, restoring your systems as much as possible in order to do the next set as hard as you can. And then other protocols that say, we want you to be tired here because we're trying to get to the bottom of the well, because if we get all the way down there, we can start digging deeper. And so finding which one's correct for the particular protocol you're doing, it, it's an interesting sports science topic idea. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some, some guidance on that in the general learnings of sports science and training, but then I also think there's some general application. You probably need a little bit of both. For a race, you need to be able to dig down into that well a little bit 
because there are going to be times where you don't get to have that rest. You need to train that system. But then at the same time, you need to have trained your aerobic system and trained its sweet spot and trained your maximal sprint. And each of those things demands a slightly different protocol. Absolutely. And it's honestly kind of fascinating. As you mentioned, I, I really enjoy the, you do four minutes as hard as you can, and then you just hold it, hold whatever you can for up to 20 minutes. And you burn through your anaerobic system and then you're just sort of stuck at threshold. Even if you wanted to go over threshold, you couldn't possibly do it. And that's a great way of sort of showing the body what it takes or what that actual point is. But the the value of it for training may be limited because you're not actually getting the most out of the effort. It may be beneficial to do two two by twenty at sweet spot instead of that one full gas 20 minute effort to just to know what threshold feels like because the training stimulus is better to have a two well-rested 20 minute intervals. I think the point, the big takeaway here is high intensity interval training, it shows some benefit. It shows some benefit for sedentary people, for amateur athletes, for gym goers. Be careful with extrapolating the Tabata protocol in particular to other other protocols and so todd you have a a vo2 max interval set that does this same alternating intensity and uh, rest and do you want to go over that and i don't even actually think i would consider that high intensity interval training in the same way as you would characterize tabata i don't know i mean it's similar to tabata in a way in that it's that two to one ratio in terms of intensity and rest. So just to back up, and there's a, there's a paper, I'll have to find it if we haven't cited it elsewhere in the show notes, but it's a VO2 max protocol and the particular study, what they had people do was 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off, repeating 13 times and then doing three sets of that. And they compared to another group that did a more standard VO2 max protocol of, I wanna say a three minute interval and they each ended up with 18 to 20 minutes at the VO2 max intensity over the over each workout. And what they found is that the group that did the broken up efforts, the 15 on 30 off, actually had a little bit better result. And what they hypothesized was it was because with those little micro breaks in between, they were able to spend more time at the VO2 max level as opposed to the longer intervals where their power deteriorated a little bit. Uh, so they're actually able to get, say, 99% of the time assigned at the stimulus as opposed to 95 or something, something of the like. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting, the purpose of that interval is to train your VO2 max. It, you're not expecting changes in your anaerobic capacity. The intensity is lower. It's, that's what I mean by it's not really high intensity interval training sure. as, as Tabata laid it out. And but it does have the accumulated fatigue effect. I can certainly vouch for that. Uh, the first, the first 30 second interval is great. That's no big deal. The 12th one, that 15 seconds feels like it's about three and it, it's hard, right? 12, 13, those are, those are getting hard and they're, they're really a challenge. And you see over time, you see this interesting sawtooth pattern, at least I do with my heart rate in, increasing over time from the first interval up towards that 13th one. So that, that recovery over time becomes less and less adequate for the effort. 
Yeah, and here's your um, sports science PhD project topic warning. Um, if we take your protocol, this um, 13 sets of 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off, and we measure the oxygen, the peak oxygen uptake of the athletes, I wonder if we see more time within 95% of VO2 max in terms of oxygen uptake, which would be an indication of, right, because power is instantaneous, but our body's response to that power is shorter or lags behind a little bit. And I wonder if this 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off, you spend more time closer to VO2 max using that particular protocol over a standard three minute or four minute session because that first minute of that three to four minutes you might not even be getting the vo2 max training stimulus it's only that last right. minute or two where you're really breathing heavily so i wonder if the wonder if that's the difference so all you phd students out there you can have that one for free yeah i mean i can i can certainly tell you that's the other piece that happens there and i'm sure you would uh, agree with that is that as you go through the, those efforts the first again the first 15 seconds you can see your heart rate and your respiratory rate decline quite a bit and when you get to 10 12 or so that decline is really stopped it, the last i don't know several three four efforts really feel like a two minute continuous effort uh, less you know not really you don't really feel the effects of that 15 second break because your heart rate doesn't really recover that much anymore you're pushed towards the limit there if you've done it right absolutely so uh, that's all we have for today. There are certainly some interesting follow-ups um, in terms of how to implement high-intensity interval training in your own workouts. It's tough, you know, evaluate these protocols that are available and see if they really do what you want them to do, whether you want to work on VO2 max, maybe you want to work on anaerobic capacity, maybe you want to work on both. We know the Tabata protocol works, so maybe that's the one to just directly replicate but if you're going to choose another protocol you know make sure it sort of follows the major themes and that you're getting the right stimulus out of it and not just following the next trend in in weightlifting or running or whatever yeah use, use the science properly yeah absolutely so so important in so many of the things that you talk about and especially when you look at a study or read a headline oh that looks fantastic i should do that thing whatever it is because it'll help me ride faster lose weight you name it all well and good but make sure that you actually get down to the the nuts and bolts of the study protocol and follow it accordingly if you expect to see the result that is touted in the headline absolutely so if you liked our show uh, please give us a like give us a review uh, share with your friends or on social media it's uh, it's been a lot of fun building the show. And of course, we want to reach out to more people and bring some more people into the science of cycling. Todd, if you have anything else? No, but until next time, thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down.